Hi, this is Steve Roost, and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio. Hello, and welcome to this week's Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's largest talk health radio. My name is Steve Roost, and each week we bring you the best news, views, and interviews with the CEOs, founders, leaders, and clinicians who are changing the face of healthcare in the UK and beyond. I am a founder and CEO of a health tech venture myself called PopDoc, and I am passionate about the people um, and companies that are changing the world. Uh, before we get into it, I want to say welcome and thank you to thank you for listening for everyone that's listening live on UK Health Radio, and welcome and thank you to everyone listening on demand. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, or Google Podcasts, as well as YouTube. So just search for Health Tech Hour. Look for my smiling face. Um, please also follow us on the socials. It's at Health Tech Hour. And also please follow the station, which is at UK Health Radio. There's tons of great presenters doing some really, really great shows. Um, so I recommend that you do that just to stay on top of everything. So, um, so on today's show, we're talking about mental health and depression but from a totally new angle, well, um, totally new for this show anyway, um, which is around the use of psilocybin therapy to treat depression. Now, for those of listeners, for those listeners who are unaware, psilocybin is a psychoactive substance that is found in magic mushrooms. Um, the use of psychoactive substances in mental health treatment is, um, it, it is considered to be at the forefront of the evolution of the field. Um, often at the moment by some people considered controversial uh, but today's guest our guest today george goldsmith the ceo and founder of compass pathways is pioneering a combination of psilocybin and a supportive cognitive therapy program compass pathways are committed to um, clinical proof to demonstrating clinical validity of psilocybin therapy of their combined therapy and they've also committed to sharing all clinical trial results whether good or bad which um, you know, take it from me is, is by no means always the case um, in, in healthcare. So that is a, a big commitment. Um, this entire area is extremely exciting at the moment. So it's great to have George on the show. George, how are you? Great, Steve. And thanks so much for having me today. Really excited about our conversation we're about to have. Perfect. So where exactly are you calling from? I'm here based in London and so oh, you're in London. And, cool. uh, yes, it is cool. I mean, we love being in our headquarters here in Soho. Nice. Excellent. So um, as as we talked about, as, as regular listeners know, the show is is in three parts loosely. You know, the first part is the origins of how you and Compass Pathways came to be doing all of the incredible stuff that you're doing. The middle part is all of the incredible stuff that you are doing to change the world. I know there's a lot that you want to get into there based off of our, our pre-show production call. Um, and then the final piece is really around lessons that you want to convey to the listeners around whether it's entrepreneurialism or whether it's mental health or motivation or, you know, things that you use yourself to help you stay on mission. Um, because, you know, let's be honest, starting healthcare businesses and health tech businesses is a bit of a bumpy ride or starting any business is a bit of a bumpy ride. But, but you know, um, that, that will be certainly very interesting. So uh, I know from our production call, George, you, you kind of have a pretty fascinating origin story. So why, why don't we start there and, and, and you tell us how you ended up in in, in the world of psilocybin, um, psilocybin therapy, and, and yeah, what was your journey to, to, to healthcare and health tech? Well, it's been uh, kind of a long journey. I'm 66, so I have the benefit of uh, having had a number of different experiences over the course of my life that brought me here, and it be quite frankly, a bit unexpectedly. Um, so trained as a cognitive scientist, clinical psychologist, and really realized early on in my life that I did want to work one person at a time, that I really wanted to have 
broader impact. And that took me into building businesses and software collaboration, uh, professional services, really worked a lot on innovation, innovation strategy. I have had uh, the opportunity to launch five different uh, businesses over my career, with this being the fifth. I think that what really motivated us to start this, and again, my wife and I uh, founded this now public company on NASDAQ, a UK company. We did this from, if Katya and my wife were here, and she's now Chief Innovation Officer, I'm German CEO. If she were here, she would say this was a essentially in our, a startup that we didn't intend to create. It was an unintentional startup, but we felt we had to do it. And I think the reason we felt we had to do it was our personal story of kind of really being exposed to the challenges of the mental health system, starting in the U.S., but seeing that it was actually a worldwide problem. Um, our experience was, sadly, our son became very distressed, depressed, OCD when he went to university, it's sort of a very public story, and he really suffered. And the more he was treated, the worse he became with medicines, medicines upon medicines, side effects. And it became really clear that he was not able to be helped even by the best people in the best universities, best settings in the U.S. And the more we shared our story, the more we heard from others that they had similar stories. Now, we know that roughly 60% of patients, 70% of patients with depression, with OCD, are helped by what's available. That's still a huge, huge number of people who aren't helped. And the more people we spoke with, the more we realized that we needed better tools um, for that 30 or 40% who aren't helped by the current tools. So this really motivated us, it excited us as an opportunity. And the urgency was profound because we saw the human cost of this for the patients, for their families. We certainly struggled with this. Our son struggled with it. And, and it was really important for us to look doing something different. Katya is a um, physician, a researcher, um, and she spent her sleepless nights as a mom looking at medical research, trying to figure out what might help. Okay. And lo and behold, she came across this article, small study done in the mid-2000s on psilocybin for OCD that actually demonstrated some benefit after the very first administration. Unheard of. She woke me up the next morning, and as you heard my age, she said, hey, you were in the 60s and 70s, the late 60s, I might add. And, uh, <laughs> just, to, and, just, to, just to be clear, yeah, you know, and, and a lot of what happened in the 60s actually moved into the 70s, the early yeah. 70s. So, you know, I did know quite a bit about this whole area of psychedelics. So she asked me, you know, I was there, did I, what did I know? And we had never really talked about this, but it was a huge area of interest for me. Um, and I knew a lot of the research that was going on then, the researchers, so much so that I was actually planning to go to university to uh, study neuropsychopharmacology and to become, to work in this area. But I was really bad at organic chemistry. We didn't get along. And so that pulled me into computer science, cognitive science, et cetera, the rest is history. So, so this is kind of the origin, huge personal impact that wasn't just ours. We saw that everyone, just about everyone has a story. It might be their own, a family member, a friend, a work colleague, but this is a big issue. And post COVID, it's a bigger issue getting even bigger. Yeah. So this is what really motivated us to look at new solutions, new opportunities to help people. Okay, so just to just to take a step back, so how, how would you define just for everyone listening? I know everyone listening 
you know, we're a pretty broad church. So there will be people, like you say, that either have suffered mental health issues or have close relatives or close friends that have done it. Um, but how would you kind of define or explain in a generalized way, obviously, um, what the current treatment pathway is like for someone with mental health issues, whether it's OCD or depression or like, what's the kind of, you know, the, 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 the thing where it doesn't work for 30 or 40% of the people. Sure. So what happens typically, and I'll pick on depression, it's the most widespread of the mental challenges, mental health disorders that we have. Um, roughly one in six people will suffer with that over the course of their lifetime at some point. Um, so what is that? Well, Basically, the typical model is you are given a first prescription if you're suffering with depression. And depression isn't just sadness. Depression really is a disconnection from the life you want to have. Mm -hmm. um, it is often, you know, you become, you look at things as negative. You expect negative things to happen. You look at the yeah. past and see kind of all the things that didn't work for you. And you look toward the future and you don't see that changing. Um, and so there's a strong inner voice about just kind of a, the world is kind of treat, doesn't treat you well. And your lot in life isn't what you hoped it would be. And that can become quite strong for people. And the more, the louder that internal voice becomes, this really leads people often to become disconnected from their life, from their friends, their family, et cetera. So that's depression. When we talk about depression, we often have people go to their GPs first if this becomes a problem. But by the way, about 50% of people never seek help, which is right. a real problem. We have to change that because help is available. Um, but if you do seek help going to GP, typically the first port of call will be a antidepressant, a tablet uh, that you take daily. Um, they take a few weeks for them to really start working. If they don't work after about six weeks for people, they don't start feeling better, more connected, then the dose is increased for another six weeks. Mm. And if that doesn't work after an hour or three months, um, often what happens is someone is switched to a different medication and the same drill. Early dose, increased dose. And then if that doesn't work, and that's for about 30 to 40% of patients, mm. then you get into almost a trial and error where it's okay. going to be tried, different things. And that's right. where we really want to come in with what we're doing. Because so is, it, is it really that kind of hit and miss? Is that because it, it doesn't sound very um, targeted, dare no. I say? Um, it isn't terribly targeted yet. And I think this is a huge area and opportunity to really look at the emergence of what we refer to as precision psychiatry. Um, but we really, the brain is complex and the mind is complex and our human experience is complex and our understanding is just coming into with new tools for diagnosis and so forth. But it's still early days. And that's the area in which we're really focused is this notion of precision, predictive and preventative care. We'll talk about that more. Yeah, of course. And so um, your wife found this paper from the mid 2000s using psilocybin in the UK, which I mean, to be honest with you, that was no, that was actually in the US to be oh, it was the US. Oh, sorry. Yes, yes. I was gonna say, was like, the University of Arizona in the US. I was going to say, because that would that 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 struck me as kind of light years ahead of its time if that was the mid 2000s in the UK. Um, no. But so so but that was kind of one paper. So how did that kind of light bulb of reading that one paper kind of evolve into what became Compass Pathways? Because that's still a massive journey. <laughs> it's a big jump. What, yeah, it's a big <laughs> leap, right? Well, then what we discovered was 
who are these people who are researching? And we actually came across some really amazing academic research. It was kind of actually quite brave to your point for its time. So maybe a little flashback into to the past. Please. So LSD, another very powerful psychedelic medicine was um, essentially discovered in 1943 as to have those effects um, and started to be used as an experimental medicine in the late 40s, early 50s. Um, and it was never brought as a medicine. It was more of something if psychiatrists were doing research, they might be interested in trying it uh, with patients to see what might happen. Um, and 19, late 1950s, psilocybin, which is the active ingredient and active ingredient magic mushrooms, that was synthesized actually by the same person who discovered LSD okay. uh, at a Swiss company. And between the time LSD was started to be tested, late 40s, early 50s, and the time of the all this going to be shut down because it was made illegal, because Nixon's, Nixon's, war, Nixon's war on drugs, yeah. uh, lots of people using it, side effects, dangers with that. So, you know, all of that kind of came to a, a crashing end in 1966 to 1970. 66 yeah. was the beginning of the end, 67. And, and then globally made illegal by the UN in 1971. So I think that what we saw in that first era was up to 40,000 people participated in various clinical trials, clinical tests of this psilocybin LSD, majority in LSD. Wow, that's huge. It's huge. And that's people a, were really, enormous. I know. So this was a kind of a, a really interesting period of, but this was also before modern regulation, because yeah. what happened in the early sixties is there was a medication that caused profound birth defects and it wasn't really fully understood to do that. Obviously when it started being used more broadly, the safety effects came out and that changed the whole view of governments and making medicines accessible to patients and, and really having a whole different view of what clinical trials, much more rigorous, what we have today. Right. So, but these studies were done before that. And so it was a lot of, you know, individual case studies, not rigorous clinical trials like we're doing today. Right. But so all of this was came to kind of a crashing close in the early 1970s um, because they were made illegal, but they were very promising in those eras, 50s, 60s. Interesting things, alcoholism, depression, people suffering with anxiety after having a cancer diagnosis. PTSD, PTSD was not really actually, uh, at that point, it was called uh, shell shock. Um, and you know, we were far okay. enough away from the, so that wasn't really very much explored at all. It was okay. mostly around addiction, depression, anxiety, okay. um, and some people in the area of, of psychosis, schizophrenia, but that didn't really progress very far. Mm-hmm. So this is the, the world that existed. Then we had kind of a dark ages. And now to take us to the current era, um, there were some early people looking at, well, maybe we should relook at this, right? It's been a really tough time for depression and innovation and depression. Okay. The last major burst of innovation was the late 80s, and then some really? things are gone now. Okay. Uh, and 80s brought the modern antidepressants. So these are the tablets, SSRIs, the things that people take, the escitalopram, and so forth. Right. That's, that's started to happen in the late 80s. Then in early 2000s, people said, maybe we should go back and look at this. 
And that were some really brave researchers, uh, brave in the sense of this wasn't a career advancing approach for folks. It was seen as controversial. Yeah. Yeah. But there was an interesting period in the late 70s into that period was government funding studies to show how bad these things were, how dangerous. (laughs) And. And some of the researchers started asking a question, well, might there also be some benefits? Because usually where there's risk, there could also be benefit. Yeah. And so that started some people questioning. And then in the mid-90s, there was a first study with psychedelics using a product, uh, a substance called DMT, very short-acting, powerful psychedelic. Um, and then psilocybin started to get looked at again. Johns Hopkins, uh, University of Zurich, um, University of California, Los Angeles, NYU. Uh, so U.S., but also here in London at mm-hmm. Imperial College, uh, David Nutt was a very influential, very thoughtful person uh, and some studies being done in Imperial. So when we came into this time frame of when the paper, you know, it was I, my wife came down and talked to me about this. Um, that was the beginning of February, 2013. And by that time, we started to see this resurgence. And so we started meeting every researcher we could, and there were so few of them, it was easy to do. We also saw how underfunded they were. Mm -hmm. And so it helped us to start figuring out, well, could we maybe contribute to this research? So we became donors of the academic research, just so we could learn more. And that's our story of kind of what we saw. And then that led to us saying, Academic research is really important. It's critical. Papers are important. Yeah. What about patients? How yeah, do we right. get this to patients? And fortunately, there's a very, very well-defined path of how you take promising papers and turn them into medicines for patients. Right. It's a clear path, but boy, is it an expensive path. <laughs> yeah, especially when it's like drug discovery. I mean, that's extraordinary, which is effectively where you are in, in, in a sense, right? We're in drug development, which drug is a little different than drug discovery. We're also doing drug discovery of new compounds, new promising okay. areas. But drug development is when you already have, have something you've identified, but then it's how do you create the evidence? How do you create it, the evidence that this could work? Who would it work for? How long does it last? How much do you take? All right. of these questions are really critical. Why are they critical? Well, what happened before modern regulation is somebody could just say, Hey, this thing works really well. And, you know, the key example in the U S was something called snake oil. Uh, This was (laughs) literally something that was marketed in the late 1800s, 1900s. And it was good for everything from back pains to bad marriages. And so all sorts of claims, what was the evidence about none? Yeah, Um, But it really was great to sell products to people who had back pains and bad marriages. And so this really started a whole focus of how do we protect vulnerable patients, patients who have no options from snake oil salesmen. And snake oil salesmen continued with making promises about medicines or vitamins or this or that. Mm. And it's really seen as a responsibility of government to say yeah. we have to care for our people. We have to make sure the vulnerable people aren't yeah. <laughs> off. Where we had, um, so we had a similar thing. I don't know if you followed it in the UK where um, it was related to the, um, to the use of cannabis and cannabis products. Mm-hmm. And so um, 
the the government legalized the use of medicinal cannabis. This was a couple of years ago. Yes. And everyone then immediately rushed to their GPs to try and source medicinal cannabis. But they failed to appreciate that the government's drug development, drug discovery approval body, which is called NICE, they were the ones that would control whether that would be available on the NHS. It's not the government's, it's not in the government's gift. And so NICE effectively turned around and said, well, hold up a second. We actually need to, yes, they've made it not illegal to supply this, but we need companies to come to us to show all of that evidence that you just said, the dosages, the timings, the longevity, the effectiveness, the, 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 um, you know, the, the health economics versus existing treatments and so on and so forth. There was a big, huge scandal. I'm not sure if you followed it. I, I did. And as a matter of fact, there are two steps in this. There's the regulatory approval, which is. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. It used to be hard to find the world's most wonderful alcohol-free drinks. Not anymore. Whether it's a health thing, a lifestyle thing, or you're trying new things. Make sure you save yourself from the guessing game of the supermarket shelves and shop with zerozilchzip.co.uk for the world's most carefully curated range of alcohol-free beers, wines, spirits and more. Health Radio listeners can save 5% with the code HEALTH5. Visit zerozilchzip.co.uk or click our banner on the UK Health Radio website. Discover alcohol freedom with zero zilch zip. Because nothing's better. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. What's the quality of the thing you're selling? So can, is it reliable that we know what the dose is everywhere in the world? Do we know what a shelf life is? And do we know that it's the same product everywhere in the world? So there's quality. There's also yeah. safety. Who is this safe for and how safe at what dose? And then there's efficacy, which is, does it really work for this particular condition? That's all governed by an organization called the MHRA here in the UK. Then there's a parent organization, you're spot on with this, called NICE, not a parent, but a, a sibling, Yeah, NICE. And NICE, their responsibility is to saying, well, look, we have public funds funding the NHS. So what's the responsible use of those funds? Well, we have to make sure that if there are things that are better than what you're selling, that we use those first. And if they're better and cheaper, that's even better. Yeah. So NICE thinks about health economics, which is what your point is. How does the, is this a good value for the NHS? Yeah. So both of those steps are in the process. Um, yeah. You want to get too wonky for your for your audience? No, it's all good. I mean, I, it was a, yeah, it was a huge, it was a it was a hugely instructive moment for I think the UK population because people up until that point just assumed that if it was legal, it would be available from the NHS, and it would have been the first time in a very very long time that 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 hadn't happened. This is so important for people to appreciate that the role of government, the MHRA and NICE here in the UK are critical for public safety yeah. and for understanding, making sure that we're using the most effective things and the most cost effective things, because we're all paying for the NHR, for the NHS. And we all yeah. want to make sure that it's the best value for money. Yeah. And that's what NICE's role is. Um, so, you know, this is where we are right now is mm -hmm. in this very long road of developing a medicine um, through rigorous clinical trials. And, you know, that's what we formed Compass to do. 
to right. actually create what we refer to as evidence-based innovation. So looking at how we can bring new things, but have evidence and how to accelerate patient access to that. Because sad, sad fact, before COVID, every 40 seconds, someone dies of suicide somewhere on the planet. And every 40 seconds, 20 people attempt suicide. Every one of those people has a family, have connections. This is a huge problem. Every day we wait to do the math, right? So for us, there's a huge sense of urgency to do the work and do it, accelerate it to your point. Yeah, and to and to get it out there, right? Yes. To get it into, in, like you said, that papers are good, but what about patients? As fast and, as possible, but not faster. And this is no, exactly. brush the high quality, and that's no, and 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 you and you absolutely you, you shouldn't. And so, like, how? Um, I think this probably be a good time to just, if you can, you know, for for myself as a lay person, and some of our listeners as obviously lay people, although they may be experts in the you know neuropsychopharmacological space, listening, there may well be. Um, how, how does psilocybin work in the in the brain? How do, how does it how does it address or how can it address or alleviate the symptoms of depression or OCD? How does that pathway work? Well, I think you know I, we can give a deep scientific answer that we're still learning, obviously, in all these things given the state of science. Um, but I think maybe for your audience, I'll talk a little bit more at a, a, a metaphoric level, based. Uh, based in science. So as human beings with our brain, when we're born, uh, it's basically we're learning, we're learning creatures. And the purpose of our mind and our brain is to actually build a model of the world in which we live. Um, so what does that mean? It means that over the first month of life, all those pixels streaming into our eyes suddenly become mom or dad, yeah. <laughs> uh, the world around us starts getting, we start to understand what that environment is. As language comes in, we start defining that and describing it. So inside of ourselves, we're making a representation of what we see. Now, why is that important? Well, you can think of a computer or our, our Wi-Fi and so forth. It has a certain bandwidth and we've been on faster and slower connections in our day-to-day -day life. Yeah. Well, our human perception is very similar to that. There's limited bandwidth. We can only attend to certain things. And so what happens is there's always a balance in as we navigate the world of kind of how we see something and, oh, that's a chair. I don't have to pay attention to that. I, I recognize right. that that's a building. No, that's Steve. Right. Um, what we then do is we allocate our limited bandwidth in order to survive and thrive in the world to things that are new, things that are novel, your facial expressions, my voice. Right. Um, and we kind of leave the stuff that's just, you know, the plant in the background. We okay, it's a plant in the background. I don't have to allocate attention to that. It's just a plant in the background. Yeah. So what happens is that in our day-to-day -day living, our day-to-day -day life, we have a combination of how we see the world how we predict what's going to happen next, and novelty. We pay a lot of attention to novelty. So that model of the world that we have also pertains to how we feel about things. Okay. So there are two things that come to come that are very important here as we look at psilocybin and, and what we've seen in, in some of the neuroscience now that we're understanding. Um, there are different parts of the brain that are connected to help process, to link my perception to my past experience. And there is also a sense in ourselves that some people have 
a more positive or a more negative, a half a glass half empty, a glass half positive, just worldview. We've all met. Yeah. Well, it's like a, I've heard it described as like a spectrum, right? So yeah. like some people are kind of like on the lower, their baseline is slightly lower and some people's baseline is slightly higher. Right. And so some people, you know, you just, and we, we have all, you know, we know the, the every day is sunshine for people and some people every day there's a little cloud, you know, and yeah. we learn that over time. It's not that we're born with it. We may have predilections to it genetically. We just don't know yet, but we know that there is a thing that the scientists called attentional bias. And this is sort of, do we see the world more positively, more negatively tinged? That's one thing that we have. And that's how we interpret what we see. It gets filtered through that bias of how we allocate attention, right? That's what I was talking about, allocating attention. Now, the other thing that some people really suffer with is a, a, a lot of what we call rumination. This is people kind of playing over what could happen, what did happen, um, let that inner voice, right, that we have in the middle of the night or as we're planning to do things. I'm not talking about hearing voices. I'm just that, that <laughs> our, when, we speak with, when we speak to ourselves, right? Yeah. Um, hearing voices is a different problem. We, yeah, let's, let's yeah, that's just... a different problem. It's, we're not talking about that today. Yeah. Yeah, but, but this is kind of, you know, how we think about things. And for some people, that voice is very loud. It kind of is preoccupying. There's a lot of worry, a lot of regret. And so these two things, attentional bias and rumination are really key. So what psilocybin seems to do is it for a period of time when it's active, and so it's a four to six hour experience. So people take tablets, they come into first, um, well, let me tell you how it works and then I'll tell you how we administer it. So what happens is psilocybin, when you take it uh, in a supervised setting, really important at the right dose, really important. what happens is you have, uh, this is where groundbreaking work at London Imperial, a downregulation of this network that kind of is that self-talk network. Okay. Um, and it gets quieter for people. Okay. They see things in a little bit different fashion. It's almost like they're seeing their life a bit from afar. A little bit dissociative. A little bit dissociated, a little bit seeing it, oh, that narrative that it keeps running, you know, that soundtrack mm-hmm. of my life, maybe there's a different soundtrack. Okay. And it also seems to have an effect on reducing this negative bias, making it more positive. Mm-hmm. And so having quieter, you know, not such an active mind, not so preoccupied about negative stuff during this experience for the people who respond, for some people, this doesn't work. And this is not right. a panacea, but for the people who respond, we seem to see a reduction in this negative view. So more positive mm-hmm. and a reduction in this kind of rigid kind of never ending, you know, ER voice. Um, yeah. and so these are things that allow us to connect to our life differently. And so for patients, this is really important because that could be such a burden to see the world that way. Yeah, it becomes, it becomes, it sort of becomes um, just, just overwhelming and you can't break out of the cycle. You can't break out of the cycle. And the cycle is determined, as I said earlier, by how we've learned to see the world. And that's a learning, right? We create the world that we, we live in. This doesn't mean that people are to blame. It's just that through all sorts of experiences, we become ourselves, right? Right. And, and so this gives us a chance to maybe look and, re- and look at our narrative. And that's what the, the psilocybin therapy does. And 
So I'll pause there. Just have any questions? Does that yeah, look, I do. Uh, what I, it yeah. looks like, right? Yeah. So let me. So I'll ask you a couple of questions. On this show, sure. we're not really afraid to ask questions that you know make me definitely look a little bit silly or, or, or stupid. So, well, or me. So when when the researchers were kicking this around in the mid two thousands, and then and then again from then, I think you said it sort of started to ramp up from 20, 2013. Um, yeah. and you got involved in donating and things like that. Mm -hmm. and, and others were as well. Well, of course. How much of this was a bit hit and miss to begin with to try and actually understand what worked and what didn't? Because it was really new and nothing had been worked on it since well, 30, 40 years. And so was it, was it, or how much, how, I guess I'm trying to get around sort of how much of it was really kind of like, oh, okay, well, we'll try this, see what happens, see how people say they feel and this type of thing versus being structured. I mean, I'm just genuinely curious. No, it's, it's a really important question, right? Because you look at the advances we have in cancer care, for example. It used to be that patients would just have this awful chemotherapy that would, you know, basically poison the body, but also poison the tumor. And we hope that yeah. the tumor resolved before the person. Um, and so, but then we started getting technology advanced or diagnostics advanced or understanding advanced. Yeah. And that changed cancer care almost completely. Exactly. Yeah. The dawn of a similar moment in neuroscience with new technologies like uh, fMRI, brain scanning. So the technology is advancing that helps us understand what's happening with psilocybin. We didn't right. have any of these tools. The best analogy I give is radio waves have been around us since the beginning of time. But until we had a radio, we couldn't detect those, right? <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. And so what we're developing now is new technologies to detect what we've, what's we what been going on since people first took these. But now we start to understand what happens within us. Right. And what we see within us is groundbreaking work that I mentioned is this down regulation of the network of connections that are in our brain between what we see and what our past experience has been. And, and really to help almost be a, a reset of that, in, again, in the appropriate clinical circumstances, which we can talk to. Is that helpful? Okay, that's super helpful. And so what were you going to go on to and explain about exactly how I think how, it, how it's administered and the methodology? Right. So this is, so it's really important. This is not a medicine that you keep taking. And that's right. something that's genuinely groundbreaking. This is a shift. It's a shift in how we see things, how we perceive things. And, and a bit of how we can operate in our lives. And so this is part of a, there are three pieces to this model of care. Mm -hmm. And I'll say it's care, not treatment, right? Because yeah. we're really trying to create a sense of people having agency. Yeah. And people having agency means that there's not a treater. It's really- Well, yeah, and, and I think- what's clear from you know having spoken to you before and looking at the your information on your website it's like this is more than just a compound right there's a there's a there's a therapy program there's a there's a cognition program there's there's more than just taking a substance this is about really helping people reconnect and recover the life that they want and that's right. aided by but not solely created by so yeah i think that's very very um i think that's very inspiring actually well, we think it is too, because if you think, you know, it's not, I'm, I'm not dependent upon the tablet. Right. I actually have used that to create a sense of agency to kind of cut a pattern that wasn't working for me. Yeah. Um, so here's what we do. 
um, we determine if the patient even could qualify. And that means, you know, we want to avoid people who've had a history in their families of schizophrenia, because we just don't know how that could, could impact. Yeah. We want to make sure people aren't actively suicidal. And sadly, so many people who suffer deeply from serious depression are. Mm-hmm. So we want to kind of have them be a bit more stable because what we find in the definition of psychedelic mm-hmm. in Greek means mind manifesting. Okay. And so we want to make sure that what we're mad, that there's some piece of something that we can build upon that's a source of hope, a source of a new way of, of engaging with your life. Mm-hmm. So there's preparation. How do we select the right people uh, who are more likely to benefit? That's super important. Uh, so we don't raise expectations inappropriately because that's, yeah. not, that's not helpful to people suffering with depression. And then we prepare them and we describe what this experience is like. And this is a powerful psychedelic experience. Um, People often have some perceptual changes. They may see patterns. Um, They often have a sense of almost looking at their life. And, you know, for that reason, we prepare them about what it could be like. We use a metaphor of a journey down a river and you kind of see different scenes and so forth. And, mm-hmm. um, and we help people understand that this experience for them, um, you know, is deeply personal. But we also have someone who will be there with them, right? Okay. Because this is really important. So the therapist who prepares, it's usually a couple, couple meetings. And what we're looking for is what would they like to have their life be? What would they like to recover from their mm. life? And then we, they come into a wonderfully chilled out room. You know, it looks more like a living room, not a, it's not like a clinic. Um, it's, you know, plants. It feels more like a living room. Yeah. Uh, there's a sound system. Uh, there's a therapist there. There's uh, typically a, a couch upon which they can lay. Um, the therapist is in a, you know, in the same room with them. And we administer the medicine. Um, and it takes about 20 to 40 minutes for the medicine to start taking effect. Um, and what happens during that preparation time is people just reflect on kind of, it's almost like they, it's to create almost a meditative spirit for them. Yeah. Therapist then invites them as the medicine starts to take effect and people can feel it a bit in their body. They, they then invited to place eye shades on, um, and we give them a soundtrack. Okay. And this is a really kind of relaxing meditation. Almost people are encouraged just to experience it. Um, you know, if they're a little anxious about what's about to happen, we give them teach the breathing exercise. So it's really about relaxing and being present for this experience. Um, and the soundtrack really helps them do that, right? It, it, mm-hmm. it gives them different emotions, but this is really about them being in the experience of the medicine, looking at their life from afar or from being present to what happens. And different people have very different experiences. Um, and the medicine builds in its intensity to for about 90 minutes and then for about another 90 minutes to two hours. People are in a, a very expanded state. Um, and then they start to return. And at, by six hours, everybody's kind of back in, kind of back to where 
they came, you know, right. if they have any issues, anxiety, questions, thoughts, the therapist is there. But the therapist's job is not to interpret things. The therapist's job is to support them in seeing things. Very different model of therapy. And, it's why we uh, call it psychological support. And what's the general kind of reaction of people after they go through that experience? I guess it will be a range of different reactions, but generally speaking, what, 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 how do they feel? How do they talk about it? And then sort of what has their progression been? I know that actually you've done a whole bunch of clinical trials in this respect. So if you wanted to switch over to using those to a way to explain it, but I'm just genuinely interested either on an individual basis or on a kind of a large sure, I, basis. I can, I can do, do both. But let oh, me perfect. tell you a really fascinating thing that the team at Johns Hopkins did. They were leaders and are leaders in this research, uh, Roland Griffiths, uh, Matt Johnson, a number of others there. Um, they have the prescience to ask a question. They were working with patients who had cancer diagnosis and were suffering from anxiety and depression because they had a cancer yes. diagnosis. Yeah. Um, they asked a question six, remember this is given once and then it's not given daily. So this is an yeah. experience given once. So six weeks after that experience and six months after that experience, they asked a single question. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. It used to be hard to find the world's most wonderful alcohol-free drinks. Not anymore. Whether it's a health thing, a lifestyle thing, or you're trying new things. Make sure you save yourself from the guessing game of the supermarket shelves and shop with zerozilchzip.co.uk for the world's most carefully curated range of alcohol-free beers, wines, spirits and more. Health Radio listeners can save 5% with the code HEALTH5. Visit zerozilchzip.co.uk or click our banner on the UK Health Radio website. Discover alcohol freedom with Zero Zilch Zip. Because nothing's better. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. Uh, much other research, but this is a question of our share. Um, how meaningful was this? This one day, this, this experience, these four to six hours, mm-hmm. people would say, what do you mean by meaningful? Well, a meaningful human experience, like the birth of your first child, your wedding day, the death of a parent, something at that level. Yeah. Over 70% of people said it was among the top five most meaningful experiences. Wow. That they'd, ever, that, they'd, that, that they'd ever had. That they'd ever had in their life, right? Up wow. with those things. Um, and this is done six weeks and... Six months. six months and it didn't very much it was very powerful people remembered it wow now the other thing is that about over 30 percent said it was the most meaningful experience of their life wow now that's huge people mean it's huge right so this is something that is it's a huge responsibility right of how yeah. do you care for people and how do you make sure that that's a meaningful and powerful and useful experience um now what we find in our trials and people who respond, um, they often have an experience of seeing a particular event in their life that they may, and we have on our website, there's actually a video on our website, compasspathways.com that has a patient story. It's about a five minute video, but it might be worth looking at because it'll share his journey. It's an amazing person who we've worked with, Kirk Rudder. Um, 
And he shares his story, but his story is emblematic of many people who respond to this. Now, remember, not everyone responds. We'll get to that. Right. Um, so often what people experience is they see a particular event in their life differently. They may have interpreted it one way and they see that, well, I could have interpreted it that way too. Mm. And, wow. you know, so. It's a bit um, like, I don't know if you, do you know the movie Sliding Doors? We talk yes, about in, in the English I, language, like a I sliding doors do. Right. Yeah. Is it a bit like that? Like they thought about it one like way the that. whole time and then it could have gone the other way. It, it could have gone the other way. And, and I could have interpreted this one way. And I'll give you an example from a trial we did. For, it's, it's a rather powerful example. Uh, from a trial we just did with cancer patients uh, at a facility. This is an open label early trial with cancer patients suffering with depression. And there was a patient who's, you know, uh, relatively young, late thirties, four kids under five, one of whom was under one. He was diagnosed with late stage cancer. It was just a absolutely terrifying thing for him because his children, what's going to happen, all of this. Um, in his experience, again, this is with a therapist, they prepared for it, the therapist knew about the situation. So it was all done in this very comfortable environment. The patient had the medicine and he experienced him almost that he was dying, right? He was, it, he experienced that he wasn't physically, this is just a, a kind of a dreamlike state that he had. Yeah. And that he was then um, buried. And then okay. he experienced his body going back into the earth. And then he experienced a tree growing out of the earth. Wow. And he saw his kids playing underneath the tree. Oh, wow. <laughs> Pretty heavy. Right? That's powerful. Yeah. I'm actually tearing up, actually. Yeah. I'm not even joking. That's very, very emotional. So, so this, wow. so what happened to him? What wow. he realized, this is a person with very high scores on depression. Right. He realized was that his life was ending, but his, but life goes on afterwards. And that for him was so important for him to be present for his life and their lives while he was here. Right. Now, the other thing that happened for him is he had some very, very specific insights about his own, his diet, his exercise, how he could take care of himself. And this is something that I think we, we miss. It's like for many people, it's they can have a sense of well-being even when their body is dying, um, right. even when they're very ill. And so he was able to, to see things that he felt he could make changes to. He didn't feel powerless anymore. Yeah. Um, and so what happened? His scores went way down, you know, he, and so this enabled him back to this idea of recovering to be part of his life or however as long his life would be now fortunately yeah. his cancer you know tended to resolve better not at all associated with this i mean certainly no claim there be very clear right. about that yeah but but you know he was able to participate in his life and when we think about depression we think about mental illness it's often about people not being able to participate in the life that they really deserve to have yeah i mean and i think that that might i mean that is i mean using it in that way to treat people in that situation that's extremely groundbreaking isn't it i mean that's very much at the forefront i would i, I would guess well, it's, it's a very it's a beautifully compassionate remember compass compassion uh, it's yeah. a very beautiful approach it's important work to do and at the same time you know we have people who are suffering from 
what we call so-called treatment resistant depression, depression that hasn't been helped by those first two medicines we started with. Yeah. And, and so this is a huge problem. It's a huge, huge problem facing society. It's getting yeah. worse. So, so if we can help even some people, that's what keeps yeah. our 140 so, people at work every day. Yeah. And it, it, what's the attitude of, at the moment of the established either psychiatric or um, pharmaceutical or whichever establishment you would choose to sort of, you know, describe what, what's their view of, of this, this space and what's, what's happening? Well, I think it's the same as they would bring to a cancer medicine <laughs> okay. uh, or any other medicine. Show okay. us the evidence. Okay. Who, do, who benefits? Okay. This isn't about woo-woo. It's about, can you please describe which patient and how we can identify the patient who will benefit from this more than benefit from that? Okay. And but, you're being, but you're being judged in the same way as anyone else would be judged. Absolutely. You're not being stigmatized. This is not, and, and, you know, there's a huge unmet need. People are suffering every 40 seconds, right. have that statistic. So what we're looking at is how do we find the people who could benefit from this as a new option, mm-hmm. not the only option, a new option for patients who are suffering for some of them. And now, that's what and, we're doing. That's what you, we're looking at. And you said earlier, um, I want to ask you this one question, then I know you want to, we, we, I want to talk about your phase two study, because it's yes. the largest psilocybin study ever, I believe. Exactly. So one question, then we can jump to that. Um, you, you mentioned just a second ago that you, you want, which makes sense, you want to try and find the people that this will work for. And the obviously inverse from that is that that, that sort of infer, well, is obvious that there will be people that it won't work for. So exactly right. just, just, just talk through that and, and, and how and why they might, well, I don't know how you want to explain it, whether or not there, there's, a, there's a logic around why it might work for some people or not, or whether it's just about finding them and putting that profile together or how. how, how That's what research is about. So let me right. just quickly switch to phase two and tell you where we are. Yeah, uh, Phase two, largest study ever done with patients in psychedelics from the beginning of time. That's amazing. Uh, in 10 countries. 10 countries. 22 different sites, seven languages. Why? Because this is a huge problem. And what we know when we're developing new things, we have, if we develop it in one center with people who really believe in it, we'll get a certain bias in the results. By doing it in 22 sites, 10 countries, seven different languages, training therapists, and we still saw something amazing. What did we see? People who had been suffering for a long time with failing, they didn't fail. They were failed by, to be very clear, they were failed by existing treatments. Um, what happened, 25% of those people who had this single experience with no other medicine, they came off all their medicines. 25% of them after three months, which is when we ended, were in remission. No wow. rest. That's amazing. Now, that also says 75% weren't. Right. So this is also equally important because this isn't something where magic mushrooms will save us. Um, It's something we have to understand far more deeply than we do. And that's why we do the research to figure out, well, not only what are the characteristics of the 25% and how do we take three months to six months or what happens if someone, do they need a second dose if someone hasn't responded? These are all the really important questions. What's the dose? So what was remarkable about our study, 25% in remission? The next thing that was really remarkable about our study was only 6% of the people who were in the study had prior psychedelic experience. Why is that important? Well, 
if this was just people remembering the days of you know being in the park or at their concert and they were just trying to relive this and try to you know, that would be one one set of results. But if we take it and about 6% of the general population have had a psychedelic experience at some time in their life. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was about what we saw. So this is something that could work for everyone, right. society at large. It's not just for people who, you know, are in, it's not like that, are interested in yeah, it. It's not, it's not like, it's not just for people who quote, like that type of thing. Basically. Yes, exactly right. It's for the people who are really suffering. Yeah. So this gave us a huge amount of, confidence to move into what the next phase is, which is a much, much larger study, and really trying to understand how this would be put into practice. Because remember, we have therapists, we have special rooms, we have special training, we have follow-up. And the follow-up piece is how do we integrate this new way of seeing the world into a mad life? Uh, And you saw that a little bit in that cancer example. You'll see it on our website when you look at the, you know, Kirk's experience. Um, So I think this is this is the promise. Now there's a huge amount of work to be done. And the reason we do all of these studies and all of these environments is we have to make sure this didn't happen by chance. Of course, yeah. That's what we have as a responsibility to patients because if they're suffering, we don't want to raise their expectations. In a yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, well look, and so, you know, we've got a few minutes left on the show. Um, is there any, what, what obviously what you're focused on this big study, um, which, which I'm assuming is taking up a lot of your time. Is there anything else other than that that's really on the docket for the next 12 to 18 months? Well, we're really excited. We have a huge technology team that can look at how do we take the experience of patients in the therapy? How do we learn what happens in the therapy? How does the way they describe their experience of life change? Uh, for example, in prior studies, we've seen that people use I more when they are more depressed. Um, That's amazing. Little, Is that you know, right? Interesting things we can, you know. So wow. there are all sorts of interesting markers and things that we're looking at around how can we predict when someone is becoming depressed because depression tends to be chronic and it relapses. Mm-hmm. So how do we predict and prevent relapse? That's a huge thing that our science and technology teams are working on. We're also developing, we have over a hundred new medicine, psychedelic compounds in development, both in Basel, Switzerland and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and the U S. Um, so our whole focus, we're a mental health care company. We're really looking at how do we combine technology, therapy, medicine, to really help people get well and stay well. And the most important thing that I believe we found in all of our work and the thing that keeps us here every day, morning, noon, and night, is what changed for people who who were responders of the high dose that we gave in our trial. Not only are they less depressed, but the quality of life has gone to back to where it is at normal levels for everybody from a very low level. Right. So our goal broadly is how do we improve individuals' quality of life Mm -hmm. and how do we reduce the cost of care for society? That's our goal. And that's what keeps you guys working every day. You bet. Right. Well, look, I think on that note, George, I don't think there's a better way to end the show. So thank you very much for your time, George Goldsmith, CEO and founder of Compass Pathways. Thank you to everyone for listening and we'll be back again next week with another fantastic guest. So thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is Steve Roost and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the world's number one talk health radio.